Today the visit is at the studio of Marco Timlin. Mm -hmm. I was born as a Finn in Germany, which is uh, kind of a, a funny thing because I'm kind of between this, these poles. I'm a, I'm a sound artist, so I dedicate myself to um, building sound installations and to develop experimental sound machines that I perform live. So it's like exhibitions and live performances. That's what I do. And um, both, both my um, biological parents are deaf. So before coming here today and thinking about the interview, I thought that this actually a funny coincidence that um, I'm so fascinated by sounds because if you think about the um, the sound environment of hearing people is totally different than the sound environment of deaf people and I grew up first years of my life with with deaf people so in a in an environment in a very quiet environment no no it's very noisy because they don't hear it oh they don't hear themselves <laughs> right yeah but oh, the interesting thing is that our reality the reality of language that we have is also a reality of information that we convey through language deaf people don't have that they have they, it they use sign language sign language they have signs they have also facial expressions that mm. are very uh, extreme like they can be very extreme and to many people it seems also i have heard that later on for me because it was normal uh, very uh, aggressive at times uh-huh because if they argue they argue like like, ah. like physically oh, because wow. they can't talk they can't so it's, it's yeah. like and um so that the first years of my life I, I grew up in a totally different sound environment than most people i would say and maybe that is just a speculation maybe that um planted the seed inside of me that i'm interested in sound and the creation of sounds and at some point in my life i realized okay i have a certain vision of 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 sounds and i have a certain vision of for example how to play and interact with machines hmm. that became a big topic in my life and still of course it and it will be i guess my whole life so all kind of sound machines that i perform live there's many aspects I'm interested in. One is, of course, nowadays, like the fine arts aspect, like I'm, I'm very interested in the shape and the form of the instrument. How does it look like to, to, to turn it into an object? An object, yeah. yeah. Um, and when I started it, it was mostly sound based. I was interested in how does it sound? How can I play it? And during the years it shifted a little bit. So equally important nowadays is the object itself. How does it look? Yeah. And um, I also realized that the more it looks like I desire it to look, the more intimately I can play it. Because we have created a kind of a, a relationship. Yeah, you put more attention into it and more time and yeah, yeah. it so, becomes more dear. <laughs> So sometimes I spend uh, 
days or weeks with finding the right cable, the right screw, um, because all these things are, are very important to me. Yeah, maybe it's good to mention that you, you are the partner of Anna Gutierrez, who I just recently mm -hmm. also got here on the podcast. And you are, uh, she said now, forming this uh, sound art mm -hmm. uh, collective? No, it's not collective. How is it like? Uh, well, we, we basically uh, just founded together the association. Ani Anitite and Seura, yeah. Yeah. Sound Art Society. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's a new thing, and uh, now we start to kind of fill it with life. And um, we're thinking about organizing a, a series of concerts here, sound art concerts. And um, we realized that, especially sound art, is very marginalized in Finland. If you compare it to other cities, I mean, I, I used to live in Berlin from 1998 until 2003, five years. It was a fantastic time. I have still a lot of friends and colleagues in Berlin, so I know what's going on. And um, in Berlin, if there's sound art exhibitions, people queue to get in. Berlin, about those years, uh, my only connection with it is the Love Parade. Yeah, yeah, those <laughs> years, but I'm talking actually about... Uh, nowadays, yeah. Nowadays, present time. In those days, of course, uh, techno was um, was so huge in Berlin, and that's also something I have to say. All the musicians they stress the importance of the Beatles. Yeah, I mean, if you if you listen to interviews of musicians, they always say, "I started to play the instrument because I have seen the Beatles on television, and it kind of changed my life forever." Really? Huh? I'm not that kind of person at all. What changed my life, or I would say people of my generation, was the sampler. Mm. So a digital tool that allowed us to record sound and to manipulate it in any possible ways. So I think that um, because you mentioned techno, so this kind of was what rock music was in the 70s and, and, and for us, it was really this kind of electronic music that came. First it was techno, then it was drum and bass, then it was trip-hop. And that was really a strong influence. I mean, maybe in Berlin, me. apart from it being so much bigger than Helsinki with so many more people, but mm. also this, uh, these foundations of this tradition of uh, having these parties and uh, connecting so much of people's lives with the music, maybe that's why they are more into sound art as well nowadays? No, I think it is, um, no. it is awareness. It is awareness of a society um, that th certain things are important or certain things are not important. For example, another city that I really like a lot is, is Montreal in Canada, because I, I used to live there for one year and um, I also played several concerts in Montreal and you just realize how proud they are in Montreal to kind of call themselves one of the capitals of digital art. And, and it's really, it's not a, it's not a, it's not just, they just don't say it, it's really, you realize they're really proud of it. So there's awareness of it. Mm. And, and for example, 
there is no awareness of sound art here in Finland and you see it even in, in exhibitions where sometimes they want to include sound art and then they have three sound art pieces in the same room. So it's, it's a joke because I mean you listen to one piece while you hear the other piece in the background and the third piece so it's like um, our goal with, with Annie Tide and Seura is kind of to, to fill that gap and to say, okay, we have a physical venue in the city center of Helsinki where we want to kind of promote sound art, invite local artists, international artists, um, have concerts here, maybe workshops, maybe lectures also. But it's, like you said, we just started it. Yeah. And um, now we make the first steps. Yeah. Yeah, and it's always great to have more diversity of different types of art in a city. Mm. So I wish you all the best with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. uh, I know very little about sound art myself, so mm -hmm. I probably couldn't ask you very smart questions in that domain. But let's get back to uh, your beginnings. Mm -hmm. uh, you said you grew up in Germany. Mm -hmm. What did you study? Like you became a sound artist later, but how did you start? Um, I guess out of frustration. So when I was a teenager, I was struggling with uh, society a lot. I, I saw all the hypocrisy, you know, all the lies, all the kind of middle class values that I couldn't share, you know. Mm. And, and I guess intuit that was an intuitive decision. That was nothing conscious, but intuitively at, at some point I was maybe, I would say I was 14, 13, 14, I, I um, went to my parents and said, listen, I, I want to learn an instrument. And like it goes, so people were asking around in the neighborhood who could teach our son. And I wanted to, I wanted to, to learn the piano. And there was a family that, that my parents knew and they had several sons and one son was a very good pianist. And he would have been a, a good teacher for me, but he just left for Paris where he started in the conservatory hey. piano. So his brother was playing the drums. So I ended up taking lessons from the brother. Piano, drums. <laughs> <laughs> playing the drums and um, I loved it. I really loved it. It, it opened uh, new doors, new dimensions. And I was very, very lucky because what happened is that I was playing with the guitarist together. We were just jamming together. And at some point I get a phone call and the band is calling me and they say, hey, um, the brother of this guy recommended you and we're looking for a drummer and would you like to, would you be interested? And so we talk about like 15, 16. Yeah, and they come to visit me, and they were very good. They were they were really amazing. They were like between fourteen and sixteen, seventeen, and they were all spectacular. And they had a fantastic drummer before me, like a real outstandingly good drummer for his age, I have to say. And I was really bad at the time. Compared were to were the, objectively really objective, bad or you just no, felt No, objectively. Bad? Okay. And compared to the drummer they had and compared to their level. Because <laughs> I have never played in a band before and they already had concerts and mm. stuff like that. But they took me in and of course I realized, okay, 
they are very good and I want to reach that level they have. So from the moment I played the drums every day, every day. New Year's Eve, Christmas time, my birthday, I played the drums every day of my life because I just wanted to be able to play the stuff well with these people. And January 1989, we had our first public concert, me with the band. And it was kind of a mm, festival where they were protesting against some plans of the city to um, build some ugly buildings on an open square in the city center of my which, hometown, which Karlsruhe. 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 So there were a thousand people, not because of us, but it just came because of the event. So my first concert in my life was in front of a thousand people. That's a pretty lucky coincidence. <laughs> and of course, I was like, uh, I was 15, 16 at the time, and it was the most, excite most exciting thing I have ever experienced, something like that. Mm. So from that moment on, after that concert, January 1989, I dedicated my life to music. Yeah. And it was music for, for many, many years. And then starting in 2003, I discovered some fragments that were kind of missing in my life. So I was um, discovering literature. For myself. So I started to read a lot and I got a lot of inspiration from literature because I was fascinated by the intellectual capabilities of these writers. I was, it was really, it touched me somehow. It's like, how can you think so deeply? How can you kind of express things so precisely, so beautifully? And then 2003, I kind of switched from purely musical side to the kind of more um, yeah, artistic side. So I discovered uh, Thomas Bernhardt, who is a kind of an Austrian writer, and he has a fantastic way of writing. It's basically one book is one sentence, so it never stops. So it's like bam, 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 very intense, very interesting. And I very strongly believe in the concept of synchronicities. Does that mm. tell you anything? Or? So it wasn't a coincidence, the no. thousand people for your first concert. Yeah, and then also that, you know, the way I, I discovered Thomas Bernhardt, it was, not, um, it was not my decision or I wasn't looking for him, but basically he found me. So. At that time, I, um, I had a partner and she was um, studying German and English at the university. And she read Thomas Bernhardt in, in one of her courses and she invited me to a theater play. Mm. And then I went back to Karlsruhe because my grandmother died and her son, so my uncle, he was the only artistic person in our family. He was a painter and he moved from Germany to Italy. So he lived in Italy. He was a painter. So he was kind of a uh, inspiring figure for me. And his wife was also very interesting, very intellectual people, very artistic people. So I was just starting to recognize Thomas Bernhardt 
and then she tells him after the funeral, I think you shouldn't read Thomas Bennett at the moment. I think that's too much for you. And I'm like, what? So there it is again. Mm. So I go back to Berlin. I go in the library in Friedrichshain and they have one book of Thomas Bernhardt, only one. And I take it and it's called Der Untergeher. And it's a story about three pianists. And one of them is Glenn Gold. And Glenn Gold is yeah, considered maybe the most influential pianist of the 20th century. And that book started an explosion in my, in my brain. And then I was cycling to Hermannplatz and there was a second-hand record store. And I asked them, do you also have classical music? And they said, well, yeah, we have some CDs here. So they had 10 CDs. And one of these 10 CDs was Glenn Gold playing Goldberg Variations, <laughs> recording from 1982. So I read the book. I discovered the CD. I listened to it. I immediately buy it. And that really changed my life. I was checking here, by the way, um, that uh, Thomas Bernhardt was uh, recommended also by Simon Sarikowski, who was my guest some time ago. Really? He also talked about Thomas Bernhardt. That is unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> so we have that link. You have that link, yes. Ah, yeah. 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 And then, you know, it continued and um, there was like Thomas Bernhardt as an influence. There was Glenn Gold playing Goldberg Variations. Then I discovered the writings of John Cage and then the whole, um, my whole artistic work. The, change direction a little bit which was hard because before that I was making more like beat based electronic music and I was very successful and of course when you start to do arts you realize that it's much maybe, harder yeah it is much harder it's tougher there is so much less audience there's so much less money there's so much less interest um, but I had to do it to kind of fill, fill a gap that I had and um, now I think a little bit how could I combine this past that I have with, with the present. So that is something that, that keeps me a bit busy in my mind at the moment. I would say, I would, I would uh, maybe describe it like that. When I was like um, 18 or 19. I could already feel and hear what I am doing now, but at that time I didn't have the knowledge, I didn't have the experience and technology was not where it is now. So at that time um, I couldn't realize it, so it, it is a funny and also kind of uh, satisfying feeling to think that, you know, for 30 years I was following that that road and it has led me to that point where I am now where I think like wow if you would have told me that with 18 I would have said you're crazy and now I'm just doing it so one of the most beautiful no actually the most beautiful aspect for me in doing arts is learning I love to learn I find it beautiful I find it beautiful if I'm confronted with a artistic problem that I have to solve and I look at it and it looks like the Mount Everest. It, I think like I can never, how, how can I solve that? I mean, how? And then I start to dig, to read, to search and sometimes 
two days later, sometimes two weeks later, sometimes two months later, sometimes two years or 20 years later, I, I, I'm able to do something that I was not able to do before. And I think this learning is, is the, for me the joy of, of being an artist, actually. It's the process of learning and the process of creation. And all the other things, um, they are just like um, necessities, I would say, you know. I mean, how do you, how do you make it known to people what you do? And, and that is something that, that is not the reason why I do art. But of, yeah, course, of course, yeah. I have to do it at some point. <laughs> if you yeah. want to continue a bit with a bit less friction to do art, you have yeah, to do if that. Yeah, you, if you, if you want to do it professionally, yes, yeah, yeah. But so one could say that your practice is very hands-on then? If you are just solving issues when they arrive, you don't have all the knowledge before that. It's, it's so special what I do that it doesn't belong into any tradition or in any category. So every solution I find is always a self-found solution for a self-created question. So, um, you know, because I, 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 um, I have also studied music. I've studied jazz and pop drums at the Music University in Weimar. And then later have studied music technology at the Sibelius Academy. So I know how traditions work and traditions are also a kind of a protection layer because you can base everything you do, you can base on something. Mm. You can say, okay, if we think about classical music, the big references, you know, Mozart did it like that, Beethoven did it like that, Bach did it like that, Schoenberg did it like that, mm. Stockhausen, Boulez, Xenakis, John Cage, Morten Feldman. So it's like you have these endless references and, and people understand what you're talking about. So would you say that it's important to have that base layer of, of the education? Of the it depends on your personality, I would say. Mm. I cannot... One thing I don't do anymore at all is to generalize anything. Because life is so paradox. People are so paradox. Um, the universe is a paradox. I only realized for myself that um, I am in a in a field of art that is so contemporary and, and is so um, detached from, from, from historical past that um, I cannot just, you know, look it up in a book, how mm -hmm. I can solve a problem because that problem didn't exist before yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. It, I am the reason for that question or my practice is the reason for the question and um, that's why it is, it sometimes feels very demanding what I do. Really like, wow. How would you describe your practice? How, how would you say to somebody what you do? I would say um, it's extremely interdisciplinary because it, it involves so many aspects. So like we, it, of course, it always includes the aspect of sound. Yeah. So how do I create a sound? That is the second question is, for a live instrument, how can I play this? And that is not a that is not an easy question if you do not play an acoustic instrument. Perhaps, yeah. Because I um, I realized at some point when I made electronic music in my studio, 
And um, in, in the year 2000, I, I uh, published my first solo CD, solo CD called Landing on Planet T. And it was kind of electronic music, club music. And then I wanted to play it live. And I made it alone in the studio with samplers, synthesizers, Atari computers. Mm. <laughs> and then the question emerged, how can you perform electronic music, digital music in a meaningful way if you do not want to perform with a laptop? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, where the, that's where that whole topic started, this question. And why didn't you want to perform with a laptop? I guess for two reasons. The first reason is that I have experienced, witnessed so many boring laptop performances. And the second, maybe more important aspect is that I came from this experience, a concert being a physical experience. Mm. As a musician, a concert is a physical experience because your muscles create the music. And if you have, if you have had this experience to be on stage and just like auto-piloting some samples and starting and stopping them, is, it was just not satisfying for me. And, and um, then I was able to create a live version of that record with a, a live drummer, a guitarist, and I was playing bass. It was, or I, I actually still think it is something special if you try to play this kind of electronic aesthetics live on stage, if you try to really to play it. For me that is the aspect of playing it is so important and that makes it also so difficult. Do you uh, rehearse it beforehand a lot? A lot. Yeah. Because I, it's like an instrument, I have to, I have to know the so instrument. You, so you first you have to build it, then you have to get to know how to play it. <laughs> I know, there's so many layers, so first I have to build it. And building often includes um, programming of Arduino microprocessors, mm -hmm. but really like rocket science programming nowadays, like because you want it to be extremely fast, to be extremely accurate. For example, um, I have a s installation called Bits and Bytes, and it's 104 floppy disk drives. And each floppy disk drive is a voice of its own, so I can control each floppy disk drive individually. So I have a choir of 104 voices, mechanical voices. And the sound is produced only in physical reality. That is another aspect that interests me a lot. Like the sound production does not happen in a computer or in an electronic instrument, but it happens in the real time. The mechanical movement of the mm -hmm. floppy disk drives is creating the frequency that you hear. To have 104 floppy disk drives react incredibly fast was a coding um, task that took many years to perfecting and perfecting. Of course, you first you have a version that works and then you realize, okay, I can do that faster, I can do it better. So you learn the object that you use, like the floppy disk drive or the scanner. So you have to, to understand how does that work? Yeah. How can yeah. I control that? Then you program Arduino microprocessor, you build the hardware. Yeah then you learn how to play it or how to compose with it and then you learn how to do that live during a concert or how to present the work in a in an exhibition stage so i'm really programmer 
hacker, um, musician, composer, sound artist, visual artist, improviser, performer. That's why it is very demanding. I would say it's very demanding what I do because it just involves all, all these elements and like I said, it's not, it's not very easy. I, I cannot just go to an engineer and say, hey, I have that problem, how can I solve it? Because they don't understand what I'm talking about because they don't use technology the way I, yeah. I, I use it. So I, at the beginning I thought, oh, yeah, if I have a technical problem, I just can ask somebody. But they don't understand it or they come up with solutions that are aesthetically yeah. not very pleasing. So all the works I have, I have done everything myself, from soldering the cables, from designing electronic circuits, like analog electronic circuits, mm. to learning how to use a laser cutter, learning how to use a 3D printer, um, working with the material, uh, how does aluminium sound, how does sheet metal sound, how does wood sound, how, how does epoxy shapes sound. So. Going back to that process of learning, I think that that learning process is... You've learned a lot. <laughs> I have learned a lot and uh, the learning gives me a lot of joy. Yeah. That, that, that is just a beautiful thing to do. And at the moment, what I'm doing is... Um, last year in January, I discovered a book called The Dancing Wu Li Master. And it's about um, the implications of quantum physics. So since uh, one and a half years, I'm studying quantum physics now because I want to um, be able to design some control mechanisms so that the floppy disk drives behave like particles, quantum particles. So imagine you're inside an atom and you can mm -hmm. hear the electrons moving around space. That's what I want to do. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah, yeah. But it's such a huge task for me at the moment to understand the basics of quantum physics, to understand the equations, so I can apply them to, <laughs> to my machine. And then, of course, you know. Really? And then I have to go. No, it can't be. It's then I have to change the Arduino <laughs> code. So, it, it be, so it's like. Um, <laughs> so this kind of uh, a vision I have and another vision I have for the future is imagine you have uh, a huge hall like a really huge hall thousands of square meters and you have a landscape there mm. and the whole landscape is just built out of floppy disk drives thousands thousands of floppy disk drives and you can walk through it and imagine you're you're in the kind of a cave and tunnel structure that is just built out of floppy disk drives. And the sound can move like that, like away from you. Like or can, can, come, can come towards you or, or can move away from you or can move from left to right and like mm. you can have waves of sound. That is a huge project where I lead a shitload of money and that once I have that money, I do it. And I think it will be a live stream. Do they even produce floppy disk sounds anymore? I get all the floppy disks from uh, waste disposal sites. Mm. Um, I think they do not produce the, the old mechanical ones, but you can 
sometimes buy them online. So if somebody sells, for example, a bunch, mm. because if you if you order one, it doesn't make sense because one costs you five euros, but then the shipping costs you more than the floppy. So you have to find people who sell 10 or 16 and then it makes sense. So sometimes I order them, but mostly I go to waste disposal sites, which is a challenge because in Finland the law is you are not allowed to take anything from the waste disposal site. Really? No. Oh. So once it is in a container, you're not allowed to take it, even if it has no value for them. In the container that's on the street? No, like or when it goes I, to the I really the, the waste disposal sites where you where, where they the, collect the waste, okay, where people yeah. come with the car, uh-huh. and then they um, have wood, metal, yeah, yeah, batteries, oil, or or old computers. But each time I go to a waste disposal site, I find old computers with floppy disk drives in it. How did this uh, fascination with floppy disk drives came to be? Like, why exactly the floppy disk drive? Again, I would say there is a personal connection. The time I grew up in, the floppy disk drive was the heart and the soul and the brain of a computer. So the Atari computers. You couldn't store a program on an Atari computer. Mm. So what you did is you start the computer, then you load the program, and then you can work with the program and all the data you load it on a floppy disk your composition or your sounds, you, you stored them on floppy disk drives. And the floppy disk drive has 1.44 megabyte storage, imagine. <laughs> and we were able to make records with that. So I was playing games on floppy disk yeah. drives. That were the first computer games I was playing were on yeah, floppy disks. Yeah. So there's a personal connection, but um, again, it wasn't a, a conscious decision. It just happened. Just I, I, I was working at the music university in Trossingen at the time, it was 2012, and they had in the basement, they had this room where they were storing the electronic waste to be thrown away. And they had a tower of old computers and each computer had a floppy disk drive. And I asked the person responsible if I can have them and he said, yeah, yeah. So I went down with screwdriver and mm. collected my first floppy disk drives. Nowadays, I have to say, they sound really incredibly beautiful if you handle them well. It's a pleasant sound and that is what surprises most people. So what I always do with um, technological objects like floppies or here the scanners is I'm interested in beauty. I'm interested in creating beauty out of something that people throw away. Mm, And they throw away the floppies not because they're broken because they don't need them anymore. They don't need them anymore. So what was once state of the art, it was absolute state of the art. Yeah. Within 20 years, it has become problematic waste. Yeah, you know, I have this thing with screens. Just once in a while, I guess. I just uh, find some old screens from somebody who's giving them away on toy mm-hmm, or something. Mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. I have dug them also from like the trash and yeah. stuff. and. And then I take them apart and then inside they, they have this uh, beautiful piece. Like first they have this sheet, thick sheet of plexiglass mm-hmm. that has these little white dots on it. And then they have these several sheets that are supposed to be dispersing the light or kind of making it even for it to be a screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those are so beautiful. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that is actually um, just looking if I... If anybody has old screens, let me know See. if you don't need them. I can take them. Yeah. <laughs> 
or floppy disk drives for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, please let me know. Scanners, flatbed scanners or floppy disk drives, I even come to pick them up. <laughs> Talking about screens and floppy disk drives, I just realized that uh, a very important aspect for me is also the process of transformation. Mm. Because I think every meaningful artwork in some way or the other is transforming something into something else. Agree. <laughs> and the more it transforms, the, the more interesting the artwork is to me. So that's why I have, for example, also a big passion for abstract art, because it's a higher level of transformation and it gives me the chance to grow while spending time with the artwork because it is abstract and it transforms something into something else. So this is a floppy disk drive like they are in the computer. So it is not a beautiful object. It's just a gray box. Yeah. So the first thing for me interesting happens when you kind of dismantle technical objects and you reveal their interior that usually is not visible. Many people have never seen the inside of a floppy disk drive and then, then it looks like that. I mean, this is, this is amazing. This is a beautiful object. Look at, look at the mechanism here. I have disassembled uh, a camera in that sense, in that way to check how mm. it is inside. Mm. So yeah. the first transformation is a visual transformation. So you transform this box into this. And then if you put that, for example, in an acoustic horn or on aluminum sheets, and then you have like 26 of them in a beautiful pattern, it's another transformation. The third transformation is this has been designed to store and read digital data. It's the only thing that has been designed for. It not, has not been designed to make sound or music or anything. Mm. So another transformation is to say, okay, I don't want to read or store data. I want to turn this into a beautiful sound source. And um, this is the read and write head of the floppy disk drive. So this is what I control. And this goes up and down in the audio frequency that you hear. So you can hear what you see because the sound production happens through the mechanical motion of that part. It goes like, like that up and down? It goes 80 steps up and then down and then it changes the direction and then it goes up and down. So if you have a continuous sound, mm -hmm. then it goes like the higher the frequency, the faster the movement. Yeah. And um, the process of transformation, I find that uh, it's actually a quote from a friend of mine, uh, Norbert Fröhlich, who, who said that once. And there's a German word that is so much more beautiful than transformation. It's called Verwandlung. 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 Because in German we have the term transformation, but it's more like a scientific, natural science terminology. You transform energy into something else. Mm. But Verwandlung is like more like a magical word. Like you take something and you, you know, you, you, you turn it into something else. It's Verwandlung. It's like, there's also a short story by Franz Kafka, I think it's called Die Verwandlung, when he wakes up as a bug. And floppy disks and then you said uh, scanners. Yeah, yeah. So 
behind, behind us is uh, the scanner orchestra. And um, when I developed the scanner orchestra, I, I was thinking about amplifying the acoustic sounds of the scanners. How could I amplify the acoustic sounds of the scanners? Because I didn't want to use a microphone or a piezo microphone or like, you know, a microphone picking up the sound, then it's electrically amplified and it goes out through a speaker. Because it's just not the same sound and it's not the same experience for the audience. So I started to study old gramophone techniques. You made square gramophones? No, but this is actually um, the same technique. So the gramophone cone we know is just like that and then it opens more and more and more and then it opens like that. Yeah. So that, so that shape, every object is shaped like that will amplify sound that is in the center, just because of the shape. Uh -huh. And you don't need anything else. So these shapes will amplify the, the scanner sounds acoustically. So everything you hear is just produced in physical reality. And with the scanners, there is one aspect that, of course, I don't have with the floppy disk drives, which is the neon light, the scan light which goes on when the scanner plays and goes off when it doesn't play. So you can also paint with the movement of the neon lights in the space. Mm -hmm. So if you have two scanners and they play different frequencies, yeah. then the lamps move in different speeds and you can create these patterns. Um, they are bigger objects and they have a longer range to go up and then to go down because like the floppies, they only have 80 yeah. steps and they have much more steps. So you can create different sound structures with the, with the scanners and um, the first exhibition of this scan orchestra was at Heureka uh, during an exhibition that was featuring like uh, recycled technology or like how to recycle technology for arts. Uh, yeah. And it was a beautiful experience because I, have, I, um, I was living in Sipo at the time when I built that instrument and there's a company called Rosk and Roll and they, <laughs> and they kind of collect the trash, which is Roska in Finnish, yeah, so yeah. Rosk and Roll. And I contacted them and I told them, listen, I have this exhibition coming in Heureka and I need scanners. Would you give me the permission to collect the scanners from your waste disposal site? At first they didn't answer or they didn't give me an answer and I thought, okay, they forgot it. But at some point they said, yeah, it's okay. You can go to Sipo and you can go to Porvo. Mm. And the staff in Porvo, they were so like helpful and they were so enthusiastic about the project that they collected them for me. Oh, wow. So they collected the scanners in their office <clears throat> and then once a month or every two months they called me and said, hey, we have six more scanners for you or we have... This is so nice. That is nice. Yeah, they were really excited about it and it was very helpful because um, these containers where they collect the electronic trash, they get also emptied. So if you come to a waste disposal site, one day after they just emptied the containers, there's nothing. Mm, yeah, yeah. So you have to be a bit, bit lucky. Yeah. Um, and because officially you're not allowed to take anything, I was very happy that they uh, agreed to this collaboration. Yeah, and it doesn't hurt anybody if, if, no. if there is a project like that. No. So, yeah. But I have uh, had struggles with uh, Finnish uh, bureaucracy because at some point there's also this Kieritus Keskus in Arabia, 
the mm. big one. Yeah. yeah. And I went to um, the woman that is in charge of promotion for the Kieritis Keskus, and she made me a written laminated paper that I'm allowed to take a floppy disk drive from the container. And then I went to the Kieritis Keskus, and there was a big uproar. Like, really, like, chaos. What? You're not allowed to go in there? The moment the computer is in the container, it's not our property anymore. Oh, whose is it? The container owner's property. Oh, so those are private, uh, privately yeah. owned? This, uh, Kusakoski is this company. It's oh. a recycling company. So the moment they put the um, old computer in the container, okay. it belongs to that company. So you go there and you wait, and when it's in the air, you just go and no, snatch it. Basically, uh, yeah, yeah, I said, but I can wait here before you put it in the container, but they didn't like it. <laughs> so I had the laminated permission, and after being there, the first time I went there, I cycle home and I get a phone call from that woman, and she says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we have to revoke the permission, you're not allowed to take anything from there. No. So it's, it's really, it's really um, crazy. It has no value for them, basically. That's floppy, this drive has no value for them. But what are they even going to do with that? I mean, They ship it to Africa, I think. Probably. Yeah, and then they dismantle it and they take out the copper, the little copper that's inside, and the little components. Yeah. And then off to the ocean it goes. I guess so, yeah. So please, uh, whoever listens to this podcast, donate all the floppy disk drives that you have. <laughs> yes. Now there is a society for our, uh, sound art, so they, they can know where, where to bring them. Yes, yes, yes. You were living in Germany, like I'm just completely off topic going now yeah, yeah. again. Uh, how did you decide to come to Finland then? When I was um, a young boy, I visited my grandmother in Ulivieska quite often in summertime. And Karlsruhe is kind of a big city, and I grew up in a, in a city, so I was kind of a city city boy. But in Ulivieska, the the farm of my grandmother was like was like paradise. So there was like the farm with the cows. There were my two wild cousins. Behind the house, there's the Kalayoki River with the Ranta sauna. So you can go to the sauna and then jump directly in the in the river. Fully. You know, the ultimate Finnish experience? Yeah, yeah. So, um, Finland was kind of a, a paradise place for me. I, I, and my, my, my two Finnish cousins, they were always super competitive, you know. Then, you know, the cousin from Germany comes and then <laughs> who's harder? And then we made this competition in the sauna. You know it, what the young boys do in the sauna. I have no you idea what there. young boys do in the sauna. <laughs> you sit there on the bench and then you throw the water on the, on the stove. I know how much you can last. And the, the last one who goes out is the winner. <laughs> so you sit here and you know what the, what the most painful thing is at some point? The ears. The ears? The ears will get super red and burning. <laughs> and I had these earrings and they would get, they would really burn, but I would be there like, I will show no weakness, I will not go out, <laughs> I will not show the, the Finnish cousins that I'm, that I'm weaker than they are. So, so it was this kind of... Yeah, funny thing, mm. and then you know, jumping off a cliff in a, in a in a lake, and who jumps from higher? And I was living in Spain at the time, at 2003, from 2003 until 2005. I was living close to Granada, and I had a teaching position at the Royal Conservatory in Granada. I was teaching electronic music to composers. Mm. The the head of the university or the conservatory, he offered me a job 
like a real job there. It would have been perfect. I mean, Granada is so beautiful and the conservatory and is so beautiful. You know, they, you go in and then they have this huge old patio. Mm. And it's, and I didn't get the job because I didn't have any academic degree for it. Oh. Oh, you need a PhD probably. For no, but you, I didn't have any, at that time in Granada, I didn't have any um, diploma or anything. Oh, okay. And I, I thought, okay, what am I going to do if this will happen in the future all the time? You know, that they want, I mean, it was a great honor for me that he said after, you know, half a year, he said, hey, we have a job for you. Would you like to have it? I said, of course. And then he says, yeah, just give me all your papers. And I said, like, uh, I have no papers. And he said, like, ooh. The problem was not him, but the problem was the Spanish Workers' Union. Because they said, he is a foreigner and he has no diploma. He cannot have that job. Yeah. Yeah. So. Mm. And then um, I realized, okay, how do I do that? And Sibelius Academy, they have this music technology study program. And um, it was a chance to kind of complete the... The circle, you know, like go back to to the roots, and I was of course interested. And I have to be honest to say that at that time I also realized that I need a bit of lacking information because I was just changing my whole practice and and going more into kind of sound art and and um, you know programming i'm self-taught in programming so i realized ah if i go to university that might help mm. so i 2005 i came to finland to study music technology and then i got stuck so i'm still here now <laughs> interesting how, how how the road leads you mm. somewhere yeah uh. yeah when you when you say that it's interesting where where the road leads you um, I think the most interesting, most interesting things happen when you allow, when you actually allow the road to lead you, because mm. not many people do that. Because most people want to be in control, they want to be in charge. And the more you are in control, and the more you are in charge, the less the road can show you anything, because you don't allow it, you don't open that gate, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. that life can guide you. Some of the most Beautiful experiences in my life, they happened when I really gave up control. One day I was hitchhiking from Berlin to Valencia, Spain. It's a long trip. Pretty long, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think I made it in 24 hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I had a concept. Um, I was kind of... The problem with hitchhiking is when they take you and leave you at a dead spot somewhere, you know, somewhere, some road in the countryside. You, will, you can wait there for weeks until somebody takes you. So what I did is I had all the gas stations on the highway between Berlin and Valencia. I knew where they are. And then I asked them, like, where do you go? Are you going to Bordeaux? Are you going to Toulouse? And then, okay, can you take me until that mm. gas station? Yeah. And then at the gas station, I didn't wait there with the finger. I, 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 I was waiting where people were putting That's very gasoline in the car and then I asked them. So I actually chose the rides. And if you go there and talk to people, they lose the fear also to take you, you know, because they realize, okay. Mm, yeah. 
So you could say that experience was an experience where I totally, I was prepared and I was structured, but I had no control. Yeah. And the people I met during that trip and the experiences I made, this is like, they were really enriching my life. The first person that took me from Berlin to Frankfurt was an Italian Tibetan monk. What? <laughs> so that's how the that's how the trip that's how the trip started. Oh, that's a very high bar. <laughs> and I For still the have the card that he gave me. I can actually show it to you. It's in my purse. I I, I carry that card since I met this guy. I mean, in my in this my, is uh, once in a lifetime yeah. uh, meeting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. But many other things happened. Beautiful things happened. Yeah, like. So he took me from, from, from Berlin to Frankfurt, which is already quite a long way. And then a, a truck driver took me over the border to France. And then um, um, in Spain, I, I approach a truck driver and I ask him like, if he can go, if he goes Barcelona, Barcelona, if he goes to Barcelona, because I couldn't speak Spanish at the time. And he could only speak Spanish. And he's like, no, I'm not taking you. You will kill me or you will rob my money. And I say, hey, hey look at me. I mean, do you think I really kill you? And then he's kind of, I realized how his brain is kind of processing the information. And he said, okay, come. Then we come to the drug. He opens it and he offers me wine, cheese, bread. And <laughs> yeah, I remember the one time I was hitchhiking in my life. Mm -hmm. I was going from Sofia to the seaside in Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. I was a student and there was this friend of mine, uh, we went together uh, and uh, the first, time, first person who took us, he uh, gave us this giant bottle of water, Okay. just you know, so that you have water uh -huh, <laughs> on the way. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And it's, it's funny how you see the best of people in those yeah. situations. Yes, you do. Because yeah. they are always, whoever takes you is always very kind, Yeah. yeah. tries to help as yeah. much as they can. That is, that is true. You see the beauty of people because in this kind of extraordinary situations, they also open up. Mm. And what, what I also realized it, you know, most of the time, these super rich business guys, they like to take you because they're lonely. Mm. You know, they travel all the time in their Mercedes Benz, like shiny and new. Yeah. And, and they're kind of, they're happy that they have somebody to, to have a conversation with. Sometimes they admire the freedom that you have to, <laughs> to, to hitchhike, you know, to kind of be outside of the system. Mm -hmm. You know, you have no car, but still you, yeah, yeah. you get from A to B if you, if you have to. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I haven't come across such business people, yeah, I have to say. No, it's something just I realized that this, like I said, I wait at the yeah. gas station and the cars come and there's this limousine and I go there and then <laughs> usually they yeah, yeah, hop in. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that kind of that experience that you described that you see the best in people. I think it's a very important experience because that doesn't happen very often nowadays. Because in the movies, in the media, they always show you the the bad mm. things, you know, because that's what gets the clicks that what that, that, gets that generates attention. the that what gets attention, yeah. But if you um on a spiritual level, if you experience the, the kindness of people and the, the friendliness, it gives you a bit of hope. So you think like, okay, I mean, people are, can be actually quite okay if the circumstances are right. 
Yeah, it gives you freedom because then they, you're less scared of people. Because mm. when, when you're constantly fed this, oh, people are bad, you should avoid them. It's like a, a notion of memes of how mm. good it is to avoid people or mm. whatever, how, oh, I don't like to meet people or something. Yeah, mm. of course, you get more stiff and somehow don't do that much. Mm. I grew up without the internet. I grew up without uh, smartphones. I and um, I have to say that reality in my youth was totally different than it was really totally, totally, totally different than reality of youngsters nowadays is. And it seemed to be trendlier. I, f I find uh, reality quite hard nowadays, harsh, like this um, competitive aspect that there is nowadays is something quite new. I mean, you know, you do something. Let's say I say, okay, I have a new project where I transform light into sound, which yeah. is this instrument that we see here. Um, it transforms light into sound. So I played in darkness and I played only with light. Mm -hmm. And then you tell it to somebody and then immediately they say, ah, you know, this Japanese guy who's in YouTube or this or Instagram, do you know him? He's also doing this. Yeah. And I think for um, developing new ideas, if you get influenced at a very early stage, it's actually a, a big problem. Because yeah, if you, if you see that, oh, that's already done, it's very demotivating somehow. Or it influences you in your decisions. Mm. Maybe you would have come up with a totally different solution at the end. Yeah. True. So... Um, and in the past, before the internet, that was not possible. Not, not as easy as it is now. You didn't know what somebody is doing in, in Japan, not really. And that is also a good thing for developing your artistic language. I find that very important. I find it very important that you stop that information overkill because if you're exposed to the information overkill as an artist, it is very, very difficult to find your true self to find your language, however weird or strange or cryptic or not understandable it might be for other people. Um, and I'm not alone in this. I mean, if you read old interviews of jazz musicians, for example, yeah, like um, when jazz started, people in Detroit, they didn't know what people in New York are doing or playing. So, so you had actually each big city in the United States had mm. their own jazz language mm. that they only developed there. Yeah, yeah. And this is what we're totally missing nowadays. And I find that sad because I, th I, th I think that is a very beautiful thing, this kind of also weirdness that places can have. Yeah. Like but th then we're kind of contributing to that at the moment with this podcast and we're putting it out there so that somebody will see this episode and we'll get influenced by the work you do and uh, or, or, or maybe not influenced but inspired that, I think I think I mean that that's is, the goal I yeah, really hope so yeah, yeah. I don't I, th like I said earlier I the older I get the less I judge mm. because I realize it makes no sense you know in a forest the more different trees you have in a forest the healthier the forest is of course yeah 
And the same thing applies to us as humans. Yeah. But I see this other kind of the attempt, which I perceive as a, as a very violent uh, intrusion sometimes, to make things equal actually nowadays. More and more equal, because the more we are equal, the more we are a consumer mass that wants the same products, which means the better we are to can be controlled and the more we buy the same products that are produced from one company. I think inspiration is, is, is the thing that we all try to um, offer to visitors, the audience. Or, or Where do you find yours? I find mine in, in uh, literature. Mm. I read all the time about whatever you can imagine. At the moment I read a book called uh, The African Genesis and it was published in 1961 and it um, tries to explain human behavior through animal behavior in a way that I have never read before like that. It's super interesting, I can't stop reading that book because it's like super interesting how how animal societies are organized and what the most important instincts are. And then you look at the human society and you see the parallels. I mean, it's, it's pretty logical that it would be like that. We're not that different. Yeah, it's logical, but I think um, sometimes things are logical and sometimes we know things. But I think there's a difference between knowing something and understanding it and there's a difference between knowing something and experiencing that knowledge as a real experience. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, second inspiration is, of course, nature. And when I refer nature in that context, I do not refer only to nature on Earth. I mean, I do not only refer to an unspoiled forest or shoreline or, or mountains but I think the real true unspoiled nature is in the universe out there that is also nature because that is unspoiled true pure nature mm. stars planets everything in motion all the time everything moves all the time and even the universe itself is expanding so nothing is static everything moves that is that is such a beautiful thought <clears throat> that everything outside is, is in, in look the earth is moving around itself moves around the sun then we have the moon who moves around the earth but does not move around itself mm. because we only see one side because it doesn't spin mm. around its own axis like we do but we are just like there's billions and billions and billions of planets and stars out there that is I think nature is for any creator the inspiration number one because how can it's you the, It's the ultimate creation. <laughs> it's the ultimate creation and it's like there's always forces at work that try to keep it into balance mm. also because the sun basically has two tendencies. One is to explode yeah. and one is to implode. So one is gravity, which wants to kind of shrink it to an object of the highest possible density. And at the same time, we have a nuclear fusion, 
It's like atomic bomb going on all the time that wants to go out. So it's like the sun is like that. It wants to explode. It wants to implode. And it is in that kind of shape. Or kind of, it's in that state all the time. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I find that, I find that uh, absolutely fascinating. Yeah. But inspiration can be anything. I mean, I guess you have experienced it yourself. It can be a walk, yeah, it's, it's a walk with different a things with, for different people. That's why I'm asking everybody. Ah, yeah. I'm just yeah, yeah, yeah. curious to find out. <laughs> well, okay. We said like um, literature. We said nature, and then I would say, of course, uh, a third inspiration is if I have the honor and pleasure and occasion to experience. Uh, artwork from another artist that really, really touches me and that I find really, really good. Um, so uh, the last time it happened to me was, for example, last year in Berlin, there was this Mads Musik Festival. It's a festival for contemporary music, for sound art. And the Japanese artist Ryoshi Ikeda, mm. he had a performance called A Hundred Symbols. And he made a performance with 100 cymbals, you know, the drum, drum set cymbals. Mm -hmm. like yeah. And it was a performance and they performed the composition of, of him uh, with the percussion ensemble of Strasbourg, which is the best percussion ensemble in Europe for contemporary music. So he has, was in a perfect acoustic environment. He has the best players he can get. The composition was beautiful and the execution was perfect. And after that concert, I, I, I couldn't move. I was the last person to leave the venue because I couldn't move. I was just sitting there and um, enjoying, enjoying the joy that I felt about the fantastic performance that I have just witnessed. Yeah. He's going to have an exhibition in the Amos Rex in the autumn. By ah, the way. Very good. I'll be there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he is. He is. Uh, he's very good. He's, and you realize that uh, it's a certain um, level of quality that I find very, uh, very inspiring. You know, to reach that level, that it just makes sense. Everything makes sense anyway. And his works are also extreme. I mean, it's not that he tries to kind of please or he's. Especially his exhibitions are very extreme, sometimes with the light or with the sound. Another beautiful experience was um, in the German city of Halberstadt. They have a kind of a sound installation called Organ 2. And Organ 2 is a composition by John Cage for organ. Mm -hmm. And in the score it reads, perform as slow as possible. So what they did in Halberstadt is they stretched the score and the duration of the score will be over 600 years. So that means that a quarter note in the score might last months. And the composition starts with the rest, with silence. So the first one year, or one and a half years, there was no sound. <laughs> And I, I went there to, um, to experience that, um, that exhibition. It's an old chapel that in the 
socialist times they used for the pigs. And um, yeah, the funny thing is because I, I told them, the people who, who are working there, I told them that I came from Helsinki specifically to see that exhibition and then mm -hmm. they were of course very helpful and very friendly. And it was late autumn, it was very cold and I was the only person in the in that exhibition and they they just left me there and I decided to stay overnight so I can go the next day so I spent two days in that in that uh, in that exhibition and they have a pipe organ there a physical pipe organ and whenever the score changes they have to remove or add a physical pipe to the organ so it can play one more note or it re reduces one more note <laughs> and the experience I had was not so much a sonic experience, it was more like a experience in time. Hey, two days is quite some time to be in an exhibition. Yeah, but also like, uh, you know that this goes on for, for over 600 years. Mm, yeah. So I think that I think the total dur the duration is maybe 643 years or something like that. Because what they did is they mirrored it back, they started in 2000 and they mirrored it backwards to the first church organ that's, that was invented in that town by Andreas Werkmeister. That was in 1400 something. And then they mirrored it back and they said, okay, 642 years ago the first church organ was built here in that town. So that's why the, why the duration of the piece is the same amount of time. but. Oh, into so, the so they decided how, how long it's going to be, not John Cage. No, John Cage just wrote as long as possible. <laughs> as slow as possible. And then they said, okay, we make it very slow. Pierre Favre. Yeah, Pierre Favre. Pierre Favre is a French um, drummer. And um, he was teaching at the... He was teaching jazz drums at the Music University in Stuttgart when I was very young. I was like... Uh, 19 and I went to him and I asked him like um, if he could like uh, if you if you could teach me and he said ah it's very expensive my classes and I can give you the telephone number of one of my students and I said no I want a lesson with you and he said oh he spoke this funny German with a Swiss dialect oh so it was very expensive, but I, I, I had two lessons with him, like two hours in my life I had lessons with him when I was 19. And I still think about these two lessons until this very day, because they were so extraordinary. What he showed me has nobody showed me before, because he has a very different, different way to play the drums. For him, the drums are not like a, like a timekeeper, you know. No, no. For most people, or for like, especially in popular music or in jazz also, um, music is based on a rhythm and the, the drums keep the rhythm, they keeping time. For him it was more like a, like an orchestra. He, he, I think he really understood it more like a musical instrument, like an orchestra that he orchestrates. Mm -hmm. And um, these two lessons with him, they were really um, so important to me that they will influence me until the rest of my life. And I mean, if you think about two hours is not much, but um, it was really worth it. And for me, it was a lot of money at the time, but I just, just paid it. <laughs>
How did you even find out about that guy? Um, I heard uh, a record that he made. Um, it's called Tamir and Pierre Favre. And it's just human voice and percussion. Mm. And he plays um, gongs. Gongs are basically cymbals that are in tune, so they have a, have a certain pitch, a musical mm. pitch. Mm -hmm. And the woman who sings on the record, she's not singing any text or any lyrics, it's just the voice as a, as a sound source, as an instrument. Yeah. So sometimes they play together and you don't know what is a gong and what is a human voice. So they blend beautifully, perfectly together. And I loved that record so much that I wanted lessons with him. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. It's actually, this, this is one of the records that I have as a record, as a vinyl record and as a CD. Just because <laughs> it has been such an influential record for me. Yeah. I should put it on a floppy disk. <laughs> Oof, I don't know how to, how to do that. I have also, you know, it's... Uh, I have also learned that um, new, uh, I would say new instruments, they um, often require their own aesthetics, mm. which is kind of what I said earlier, that I think um, that what I do is not fitting any category or any um, kind of label, because I try to listen to the machine and really listen to the machine. I cannot emphasize this enough what that really means. It means that you forget all everything you have learned, all the notions, and you really listen to what this sound machine can create and what are the things that are interesting or beautiful. They might have nothing to do with musical terminology. So for example, what he does uh, I can't do with that, but I, it makes also no sense to do it. But I can do something that has the same dignity and the same humanity and the same beauty and maybe the same hope. I was uh, lately, we are confronted with dark future for humanity, I would say. I think there is uh, the chance that only some people will survive in the future and these people will be the rich people mm -hmm. because they will have enough water and they will have enough security and they will... And bunkers. Bunkers and yeah, and they can be secluded. So how do you respond to that as an artist? And since I'm not a politician, I realize that I cannot respond in any acti activism because that's just not my cup of tea. But I think what I, what I try to do is to kind of confront this ugliness that we experience with beauty. So, so I just say, okay, there's this hopelessness and there's this ugliness and I create beauty and I want to create hope. And that's what I, what I put there as a kind of a social dimension of my work which I don't talk a lot about because I think it's a kind of a, it's a personal thing also. That mm. I, and I also think that people are like, 
often misusing it. You know, the label is more important than the work itself nowadays often, or the kind of the packaging, or like, uh, I, I, I totally disagree with that. For me, it's still the content that, that matters. Unfortunately, nowadays, I have the feeling that the content is nowadays less important than the packaging, which has also to do with um, the media environment we live in. You know, like, your website is for many people more important than the actual work. Maybe because people consume the, the content so fast and they don't have time to go into it. Yeah, but that is a contradiction. If you have no time and you want to experience art, then there's a contradiction. Because mm. art demands that you invest some time and you will only gain something meaningful if you invest that time. If you don't do it, you will just scratch the, the surface and, and it's just... You know, many decisions are based on either how you can write about a work, oh, which, yes. which is not the work, yes, yes. you know. Mm -hmm. The way, I mean, it's a different skill. Some people have a skill that they can write about what they do in a very convincing way, right? Yeah. But that doesn't say anything about the work itself. So that is a kind of a, a conflict I see nowadays in the art world that Decisions are based on the wrong aspects. Mm. Decisions are based on a video you make of something, a text you can write about something, but not about the work itself. And unfortunately, decision makers who are also part of this society, they often base their decision on that. And that I find a bit um, hard sometimes to cope with. Yeah, I guess they, because art has always been a little bit subjective and kind of elusive to these uh, uh, criteria that they want to have mm. in order to make some decision mm. for whatever funding or mm -hmm. exhibition or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And maybe they're looking for these ways, like, okay, how can we make it so that it's still about the art, but like, mm. so that we can measure it a bit better. Yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it doesn't serve justice to the art itself, for sure. Yeah. I think what we miss in Finland is really, in the art field, what we definitely miss, especially in Finland, is brave decision makers. Brave decision makers who also say, hey, that is something very unusual, very contemporary, maybe. And we found this while the artist is still alive. Because what happens in Finland is once you're dead, then there's a Elki Kuriniemi exhibition in Kiasma or Mika Vainio exhibition in Kiasma. So you have to die first, you know, why? Well, that has always been, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah. yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> that's okay. kind of a tradition. Uh, uh. But, yeah. But, but this is something that really puzzles me, I have to say. And mm. I think maybe that's also uh, interesting to, to mention in the podcast, because maybe there's other people who feel the same. But that um, I find the decision-making um, strange many, many times, yeah, because it is not based on the quality of the artwork. So what I don't understand, for example, is why do you say... We can only fund a project that has not been realized. Mm. Why don't you say, hey, somebody 
with blood and sweat and suffering and maybe investing a lot of his own time and maybe a bit of money, did something that is really meaningful and we see the result, actually, you know. Is it always like that, that yeah, it has like to be that. a new work? Yeah. So that's like, a super contradiction because just because you can write a beautiful description of the artwork, still I don't know how, how it will be when you really do it. And it forces us to logify everything. I invented that term, but to rationalize everything and logify everything because yeah. we know that artistic uh, art decisions are based on intuition most of the time and that is the important thing and that is why art is so important and that is why art can be so visionary because it is not based on all the parameters everything else is based all the time it is based on something timeless and and it is based on human intuition and i think as an artist what you do is you kind of try to develop the the, the capability to be intuitive because that's actually something that you can support and practice and, and allow in your life intuition it's nothing that that if you never if you never do it it just comes it's something that you have to also prepare and provoke and that I mean, it's like an unconscious knowledge that you have yeah yeah, yeah. that you don't yeah like fully and that you allow and mm. that you kind of take care of, like a plant. You water it, you put it in the in the sun. You I mean, and all kinds of knowledge is not just gonna be poured into you. <laughs> you have to work for it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever used your your voice in your works as somehow? Never. No. Have you considered that? Mm. I have so I have a total lack of confidence into my voice that I'm just not daring to to use it or another possibility is that it's such a personal thing for me that I that I don't want to maybe share it. Uh, have you ever had a creative block of some sort? Of course, of course. Yeah, how, how do you get through it and overcome it? Um, the first reaction is often frustration. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Frustration and um, doubt you start to doubt so you have a block you're frustrated and you start to doubt everything yourself and being an artist and um, putting so much time and energy and love and effort in the works and receiving so less for it mm. I think that is a big mismatch um, of course experience helps a lot really so, in a sense, being older and having over 30 years of experience as, as a freelance musician and artist, it helps because you realize, okay, wait a moment, this has happened in the past and you have found a solution. Mm. So you will find also a solution this time. So I think the way to overcome is actually very easy in theory. Trust yourself. A hundred percent. The answer is inside of you. It is there. 
it has oh, you, because until now I always found a solution sooner or later always so don't allow the doubt don't allow the frustration say okay I'm blocked there might be reasons for it one reason can be you're missing knowledge that you have to acquire second reason might be there's a quality of time and there's a quantity of time and we in the West we only talk about the quantity of time we say in one hour in one week in one month yesterday two hours ago but we never talk about the quality of time there is a quality of time which means that sometimes you do the right thing but in that very moment you try to do something but the time is not right for it so Trust yourself. I think love yourself. Yeah. These are the two basic principles that I think will make your life as an artist much, much, much easier. Trust yourself. Love yourself. If you cannot trust yourself, if you cannot love yourself because nobody has ever shown you, for example, you come from a difficult family background, you can learn it and you have to learn it so learn it so you have a block that is a chance to learn self-love and self-trust and like I said when I was younger uh, the reaction to a block was an emotional explosion which was not pretty for neither for me nor for my environment nowadays I would say it happens, but it's not a problem anymore. You learn how to, yeah, I think that's the most important thing actually. If you would ask me what's the most important thing for an artist, I would say learn to live with yourself. Learn to be, learn to treat yourself gently and with a lot of respect and with a lot of love. Do you have specific routines in your work of how to, how, you know, you come to work and do you have some specific rituals that you do, not rituals, but like actions to get into the process? Yes, I have. And it always depends on the, the mood I'm in or the energy level I have, because that's different every day. Um, so let's say it's a, it's a normal day. I'm maybe a bit tired. I'm a bit distracted, maybe some things have happened yesterday that are not so pleasant. So I'm not really a shiny, happy person that day. Mm. What helps me a lot is I sit down and I make a plan for the day. So I really write down, okay, what is important to me today? I would like to do one hour this, one hour that, half an hour reading this, one hour that, and then I just go through the plan. I don't need the plan if I have a good day, of course, because then things go easy. But this structure helps me because there is no structure in my life. I'm a freelance artist. I wake up in the morning and I have the privilege and the burden to decide every morning what's going to happen that very day. And many people cannot handle that. Many people cannot handle that degree of freedom that I have in my life and that I want in my life. And it is exhausting sometimes because there is nobody else who kind of 
motivates me or like uh, uh, gives me a kind of a framework. Like, let's say you have a job and you have to be and there. You at have nine. to kick yourself in the yes. butt to do stuff. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And then the routines they depend a little bit. If I'm in the process of creating a new work, I'm in the process of refining a work, or if I'm, for example, preparing for exhibition or for a concert. So the most beautiful phases are always when something's done, it looks like I want, it works like I want, and I can just spend time with it mm. to kind of play it, understand it, compose for it. That These are the, the highlights. So the routine, if it's creative phase, are different than the routines when it's a more like a mechanical phase. For example, if you know, okay, I have to solder 50 cables today. Yeah. That's just a mechanical work. You don't need a good mood. You don't need a bad mood. You just have to do it. So I have good CDs usually, put on good CDs when I solder, and then I solder here for hours. Well, soldering is very pleasurable, I don't know. I don't like it, but like, I have to do it. <laughs> I like soldering. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. I don't do it very often, but I, I do enjoy the, the mm -hmm. I mean, not, not the smell of it, but like, yeah, anyway. Then I should invite you for the next big soldering session. <laughs> <laughs> I, give you, I can give you a mask. I, I'm always soldering with the gas mask because it's really poisonous. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good to take care of the... No, it, because if you solder a lot, at some point, I realized that I was sometimes yeah. dizzy after soldering, like two hours soldering, because yeah, the maybe fumes, I wasn't they go... soldering for that yeah. long, yeah. I, I guess. Yeah. Sometimes I solder for hours and then really I have these professional masks now. Okay. Mm -hmm. About the, the studio space, have you always had a, some sort of a studio? I would say this is the most beautiful studio space I have ever had in my life. And that studio space is also the direct result of a personal decision that I made for myself. And I said, I spend more time in the studio than I spend at home. So it's the most important space that I have in my life. It's the source of everything. So I want now a studio space that is warm, dry, and I have daylight, and I have clean air. And it took me a long time to find that space. I was cycling around Helsinki, seeing millions of spaces, and um, this is a beautiful space, and it influences my work very positively. Mm, it's pretty large, also. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's 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 large because I think um, in the future we will block this here and use that mm. for the for the performances here, empty. Yeah. And this is my studio and when this is empty I can also use it, but um, yeah. so um, this, this might be a, a performance space in the future. Um, of course nowadays that I make big installations, space has become more important than in the past. Mm. For example, if you, um, if you make electronic music with a laptop, a sampler, some synthesizers, you can do it even in a flat yeah, with yeah. headphones. Yeah, but I mean, those are pretty large. They are large, and then in this box are the floppy, floppy disks. And um, the beautiful thing about that space is also that I have now the possibility to, to make good videos of my works, mm. because I can always empty that space, and then yeah. arrange it so that I can film it. And uh, 
because that is something I really struggle with because I know I have to find a way to document my work because people, yeah. people want decision to see makers it. <laughs> want to see it and they some of them cannot come and or they don't want to come so I have to find a way to document it and it's challenging for me because my works are not made for that kind of format yeah you know like imagine you're you're inside of a sound installation and the sound is moving everywhere around you it's impossible to document that on a 2d medium like we have to make camera. some vr version of it <laughs> yeah or i have uh, but then that's like it becomes another piece in itself like yeah. it goes a little beyond documentation only. but you're actually right it is it, anyway it is a different piece it can never be the experience that is something i learned mm. it can never be the experience you have really while you are physically there in the space so it's actually for me interesting thought to say i represent it i mean with your type of work it's even stronger this but you can have that with a painting even that it's completely different if you see it live and if you see an image of it but to me it seems much easier to kind of of course yeah yeah, yeah. You with know. you it's a more extreme situation yeah yeah, yeah. 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 do you store all, all of your works here now yeah 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 now everything is here we have a storage space and um, some of um some objects I still have at friend's place uh, in Sipo. I have to pick them up there. But uh, yeah, these are, these are all the works. And also look, this is very important to me. That is my dream. Order. Hey, yeah. Tools. If I need a tool, now it takes me 10 seconds to fetch it. Yeah. In the past, I mean, if you're in the process of doing something and you need a tool and it takes you 10 minutes to find it. Yeah, it's, it's in just, a box somewhere behind the box. Yeah. It's in the box under the, it's always the last box. It's always the last <laughs> box at the end of the storage space. There it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. last. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So what would you say is the most important element here for you? Mm, the most important element is to have that space available. That is just mm. to have that space in the sense of size available. That it's not like a 10 square meter thing. To just have space in Helsinki, in the city center, is a privilege. For sure. So that is what I enjoy, that, that, that there is just... Mm. You know, because it's a, it's a physical space that I have around, but it immediately also turns into a spiritual space that I have. Yeah, you know, I, like, I strongly like, believe that the, the space you have very much influences the work. Yes, and, and the size of the space. Yeah. Yeah. I have had space that was a part of a room, you can say maybe seven square meters were mine. Mm -hmm. and, and you can never do something bigger there, ever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I had a room that was 13 square meters and, and that was pretty small yeah, yeah, <laughs> also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, totally. How, how big is this one? I think that is something like 48 square meters here. 48. And uh, a bit higher ceilings than usual. Very also. generous. Yeah. 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 Great. I also used to work uh, a lot at home when I was younger, but since I have children, that is not possible anymore, <laughs> and that has um, also changed a lot in my life. Yeah. This kind of not being able to um, work where I live, that was uh, a bit of a struggle at the beginning because I was so used to it. You know. Mm. You had a flat and then one one room was just like 
the studio space or like uh, in, in the flat where you usually live, you just had another room where you were working. Um, that was not possible anymore. So that's another aspect. I enjoy that I come here, I close the door and I'm not disturbed. Yeah, I, I bet. <laughs> I, I don't know, but like, yeah. probably. Our children are young and they're curious and it's beautiful to see them curious, but sometimes it's just not the right moment because you're just in the middle of something. Um, so how it is like to be an artist and a father in the same time? It's challenging. It is challenging because um, if you want to um, if you want to do meaningful arts, it almost requires all the time and energy you have. Mm. You put everything you have inside. I mean, you put everything you have in it because you want the um, highest possible level of excellency or like, 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 um, I mean, let's face it, good art is always an um, extraordinary situation out of the ordinary, I th for me at least, for mm. me. I know artists might disagree with that, but for me art is really like a, like a ritual in the past. It's something that is extraordinary, that is like a, a very intense uh, experience. And when you have children and you love your children and you care for your children, suddenly you have to kind of divide the energy with something else. Mm. So there are times where you realize I have less power as an artist because I am a father. But at the same time, you also realize that I have more energy and more power as an artist because I am a father. And then we come to the, uh, to the topic we mentioned earlier. It's a paradox. Mm. It is a paradox. It also depends on, on the family structure, you know. Do you have a, for example, do you have a supportive structure or are they like complaining about every five minutes you're not there or like mm. that, you know, many things are, so you cannot say uh, being an artist and a father is like that. I think it depends on, on the circumstances. It depends on the family. It depends on the children. Yeah, of course, of course. It's just about your case. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So probably having a partner who is also an artist helps because they would understand. The understanding is there then better, yeah. yeah. But yeah, there, there are moments where I think as an artist you have to be very, very brave and you should not make any compromise ever as an artist. Mm. As a human being, sometimes you compromise. But I think as an artist you should never compromise whatsoever. Don't do it. Don't start it. Don't do it. Never do it. Don't compromise. Because it will weaken the, the work. Every compromise weakens the work. But of course, as a, it's much easier to be radical and to be super brave and to be like extreme when you have no responsibility for anybody else than for yourself. So let's say hypothetically, you have the feeling, I need some inspiration. I think I would just move tomorrow. I would like to move tomorrow to somewhere else which I have done in the past. I've done that. I realized, okay, like you said, this is stuck. I'm stuck here, I'm blocked. Yeah. I move somewhere else tomorrow. I sub-rent my flat and I move somewhere else. I did these things in the past and they have always worked out nicely. 
that is of course things that you uh, <laughs> you still can do them but the consequences are not a hundred percent positive mm. while in the past it was often like a hundred percent like adventure you just make an adventure um, but the beautiful thing is that my son has a sensitivity for the things that I do for some strange reason. I mean, when he's around, then of course he is going to develop that. It, it can also be it can also be that you have children that are just precisely not interested because it's what you do and it's commonplace for them. It's normality, you know. Mm. So like children that are like, oh no, he's doing his sound art thing again or his sound art performances or like. Um, but I see some curiosity in, inside of him and that helps helps me a lot. So it's like, he asked me the other day, he asked me, Papa, when are we building an instrument together? So let's see, let's see how it, how it, how that works out. Yeah. Maybe he can even uh, finish or accomplish what I'm looking for, who knows? I love that, I, I, I love that medieval idea of like, um, father and son like crafting in the <laughs> yeah 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 like like you kind of learn from your father you're like holding the cables and say like solder here now here it's the good spot yeah or whatever. <laughs> i mean he's he's four and a half now and we talk about quantum mechanics mm. quantum physics and we talk about gravity and we talk about like uh, instincts and so it's like it would be, of course, a, a, a beautiful thing because we have lost that tradition. And I think that is also one reason why many relationships between parents and children are complicated, I would say, maybe sometimes even a bit boring because they have nothing to, to share much. Um, so if, if you think about you have a child and the child is interesting what you do and might even continue that or um, that is a comforting thought but of course that is not in our we can control that it really comes from the child I would say mm. yeah. or you you train them like an animal like the father of Michael Jackson did with Michael Jackson or the father of Mozart did with him they trained them like but that doesn't usually end well. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. That's what I mean. Like, it's not really, that's not something that is, um, that's something that has to come from the child if you want to do it healthily. Mm. Mm. Because otherwise you have destroyed souls, I would say. Like we have seen with Michael Jackson, or also Mozart. I mean, he wasn't. He was a very gifted musician and composer, but I think he was struggling with many things. I don't know if I have anything else to, to say. No, I think. Yeah. This is good. <laughs> I'm surprised how quickly that went. Well, it's, you know, two hours like that. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you a lot yeah. for being my guest and me being your guest in the studio in the yeah. same time. And Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah. And good luck with um, uh, Art, Sound Art Society. Thank you. You will guess soon there will be the first announcements of uh, events follow, and yeah, performances. Yeah. Yeah. All right.